The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. And I'm here in the studio with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good morning, Ricky. Vic, good morning. How are you, man? Uh, I am well. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of indictments and cases settled and such happening around the world. So let's go right into it and talk about uh, one of the m- most notorious uh, people, uh, Congressman George Santos, who was finally uh, charged with 13 indictments, which include seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of making uh, materially false statements to the House of Representatives. Of course, he's pled not guilty to all 13 of them. Uh, so, oh, and on top of that, he settled his case in Brazil. Um, he confessed to stealing a checkbook uh, and falsifying his name. Uh, so he, uh, he settled that and uh, agreed to pay restitution and put that behind him so that he can avoid uh, prison time. There you have it. When do you think his book is coming out? <laughs> his book, yeah, exactly. Where where he's going to blame everything on Democrats and liberal media and all of that good stuff. Uh, probably right after he doesn't get reelected if he's not ousted before his term is over. Because never say never, because anything could happen in politics after 2016. But I don't think that uh, New York Republicans are going to uh, vote for him again. What a bizarre dude. Talk about a blank show. This guy's been a blank show since he got sworn in. And it's kind of weird how how much he mirrors Trump, not only in the uh, pathological liar sense, but he's kind of following the legal footsteps of, of Trump, too, in terms of these indictments. And You're right. So, it's, it's just what does it really say about the Republican Party? What does it say about our political system? Um, I also think that the media, especially New York media who covered this, have some accountability to look at because to think that all of this wasn't, there was a journalist that actually knew this and tried to talk about it, but he didn't get much, much airtime. But, you know, most media just kind of let him sort of have a free ride all the way to Congress. It's just unbelievable, unbelievable. The lies, the fraud, the, the it's just, just keeps going and going and going and every every month there's something new and uh and of course he's gonna say no i didn't do anything i'm not guilty of any of this despite the overwhelming evidence uh, some of which we've seen play in public so yeah and, he, and and it seems like he really he really believes that he's not guilty of uh whether it's uh public opinion or now these these new indictments that came down. That's the sad part is that he he really believes it. Well, and... I mean, just like Trump, egomaniac narcissists believe in, in you know their own false reality of things. And it's always somebody else's fault. And it's always, you know, they're victims and all of 
these conspiracies are happening against them and all this stuff. You said it. You said it right. It's it's kind of mirroring Trump. He's like a mini Trump. Speaking of, Trump uh, had a rude awakening uh, when last week when a federal jury in New York found him liable for sexual battery and defamation uh, in a civil trial stemming from allegations that he raped the writer E.G. Carroll, Eugene Carroll, I should say, in the department store in the 90s. And uh, uh, they awarded her uh, $5 million. So there you have it. I mean, he's the first uh, first former president that's been found liable of something like this. God bless her. God bless that jury. Heard some of uh, the testimony, or rather uh, read some of her testimony, and what a uh, crappy situation to be in. What stood out was uh, when she said it felt like Trump had a zillion hands. And anyway, it's just what a just kind of a nightmarish situation to be in. And not just the incident itself, which I'm sure was horrendously traumatizing, but the fact that ever since she's spoken up, I can only imagine the kind of heat, the kind of hostility, hate she's received, harassment from Trump supporters. I mean, yes, I, I absolutely agree with you. God bless her for having the courage the determination to to see this through all the way to the end because she she didn't just do herself right but she really uh is an example to all uh, women or just anyone who's a victim of crime victim or has been victimized um to stand to stand up for themselves no matter what comes your way and that's rare because so many people get intimidated and I don't blame them uh, but it's just the fact so many people get intimidated and decide to silently suffer and not say anything because they can't handle what comes at them. So, yes, uh, I, I, I salute uh, E. Jean Carroll for having done this. Speaking of Trump, I, I wanted to touch on the uh, the blowback that CNN is getting for hosting the the Donald Trump town hall. A lot of people have been speaking out about it, including people part of the CNN organization. I have a couple quotes I wanted to read. Well, first, I wanted to touch on um, some early data from the Nielsen uh, media research uh, came out. And uh, over 3 million people watched Trump do his thing last Wednesday night. Let's just Let's just put it that way. So the controversy is obviously that Trump was showing no respect to the moderator and uh, the moderator, uh, Caitlin Collins. And um, Trump continued to kind of push uh, hit these claims about the 2020 election. Uh, he touched on the uh, indictment. He even uh, touched on the uh, the E. Jean Carroll verdict, basically just kind of reinforced everything he's been saying the last five years and there is not an ounce of remorse for for anything remorse how do you have remorse when you deny everything even things that are so obvious and the you know jury has found you liable i mean it's just insane here's what i think about this i guess what i'm trying to say is he it's almost like He's just doubling down on everything. Of course he is. I mean, are we surprised? I mean, that's just Trump. Uh, you know, people don't change like that. They just don't. That's that Trump is going to 
do that for the rest of his life and he'll probably get worse um, as time passes. I mean, this is a man that's it's a narcissist. But what about the, the idea of learning from your mistakes? <laughs> and, you know, the, well, some these people things are not that... capable, some people <laughs> mistakes. He doesn't think he has mistakes. That's the thing. I mean, it's just the, you know, he's just sort of his own thing. But here's the thing with CNN, you know, uh, in 2016, 2015, 2016, CNN was just as complicit as other media outlets in promoting Trump, in giving him so much airtime uh, and uh, and just contributing to the, the this false narrative that um that took over about the, you know, Hillary Clinton emails and all of that. And CNN was just very complicit about that. And yet again, and now that this year, CNN appears to have this like new uh, public relations campaign to uh, rid itself uh, of the reputation of liberal media, although I don't think CNN is liberal. Uh, I've said it before, for-profit commercial media cannot be liberal uh and and so they're trying to like shed that off and i think that has contributed to firing of uh don lemon and i'm not saying that he hasn't said some um sort of uh, i you know eyebrow raising things so i think this is another quest for cnn to say oh we're more centered we are more uh we are uh you know, we're not biased or we're we're not liberal by giving Trump a platform to essentially just uh, deny, 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 blame, blame, blame. Uh, and I'm glad that they're getting um, this kind of a, a backlash. I mean, I lost respect for CNN a long time ago. I mean, this is a network that, you know, ever since the 2020 uh invasion of Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan, they've barely covered it. And when they have, it's been riddled with um, errors and falsities and false balance, both sideism and flat out bias. Hey, CNN, you deserve everything that's come your way and coming your way, because once again, you are placating Trump uh, and, uh, and the right wing um, talking heads, if you will. Yeah, I actually dig the fact that they're willing to give a potential candidate a platform and some airtime, but I just wish that they would show a little more uh, fortitude and a little more um, kind of wrangle these moments in and not give whoever just kind of free reign for an hour during this town hall. Uh, I just want to point out one instance. Um, yeah, obviously de denying the sexual misconduct, uh, which a day prior he was found liable for. Uh, he said that he never knew E. Jean Carroll, so he just kind of continued that. And there was one moment where the crowd cheered and uh, and I guess laughed as Trump kind of mocked Carroll and mocked the accusations. So it was a weird moment. So anyways... Uh, before we go to break, Vic, I uh, just want to remind people that KPFK.org, we are a listener-sponsored radio station. If you can, we would really appreciate a donation. And uh, secondly, I wanted to remind listeners that they can still 
check out your the town hall that you moderated uh uh in glendale um that's right for, for the uh, truth and accountability league can you point people into that direction if they still wanted to watch the the town hall yeah absolutely so last thursday so two thursdays ago uh may 4th um truth and accountability league which is um a nonprofit advocacy organization that I founded about three years ago. Um, we had a town hall in Glendale at the Glendale Central Library to address uh, recent anti-Armenian uh, hate acts and hate incidents in Beverly Hills and Glendale, as well as general hate acts, defamation, propaganda against uh, anyone, just uh, all through LA County. We had a, an incredible panel of people uh, we had the mayor of Glendale, uh, Glendale's police chief. We had mayor of West Hollywood. We had um, chief of staff from the L.A. district attorney's office. Uh, we had uh, Commissioner Sam Kabushian, as well as the uh, executive director of the L.A. County Commission on Human Relations, Robin Toma. Uh, it was uh, live streamed uh, and people can watch the entire thing, uh, you can go to truthandaccountabilityleague.org, uh, or you can just go to YouTube to uh, the Blunt Post with Vic uh, YouTube channel. Uh, it's posted there. It's about an hour and a half, the entire panel. We took questions from the audience, and uh, I moderated. So there you have it. Thanks for reminding uh, our listeners, Ricky. Yeah, and your uh, back and forth with the uh, mayor of Glendale. Trust me, everyone listening right now, you will want to watch this. Last thing, Vic, uh, your interview with um, uh, Pollard. Uh, any quick takeaways from it? Uh, you want to tease it? That's coming up next. Yeah, so Russell uh, Pollard is he's English. He's a photojournalist, a writer. But what's super impressive about him uh, as an activist, he has... He's one of those exceptional people who's non-Armenian, and yet uh, he's done so much to bring attention to what is happening to the Armenians of Artsakh, uh, who are basically going through a genocide right now by Azerbaijan, and uh, just his immense work in uh, getting the Armenian genocide recognized in his native Derby, uh, and so on. So it's it's very... Uh, it's very inspiring. It's an inspiring uh, story. Uh, he's an inspiring person, and I'm excited to uh, to interview him. Cool, cool. So everyone, please stick around for that interview. That's coming up next after we take a break. The Blunt Post with Vic. Patty Smith, and you're listening to Fiercely Independent Pacifica Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM. People have the power.
This is Jackson Brown. I've been listening to KPFK since I was a teenager. Then and now, KPFK has been a lifeline to vital information without which we would be at the mercy of corporate media and commercial interests that control it. There are so many programs that I've listened to regularly and so many instances when I've come upon the unexpected, the unknown, and the sublime. Join me and become a member today at kpfk.org. Now more than ever before, it's essential to keep supporting KPFK and the free exchange of ideas and cultural viewpoints that foster our democracy. And the number, which is the only number I know actually by heart, 818-985-5735. KPFK. I came for inspiration. I came looking for truth. Hello, dear friends of KPFK. My husband, Blaise Bonpain, and I became supporters and contributors to KPFK in 1969. All of this startling and non-startling historical events that have happened since then, and there were so many, made us constantly go to KPFK so we would be better informed and activated. So many times we said, we need KPFK more than ever, and we always did rely on them. Today, more than ever, ever, we need KPFK. We all know that, and we all must do everything we can to keep KPFK alive and vital. Blaze would look down on us with his smile as we do so. Thank you, Teresa Bonpain. This is DJ Boxy D from the Butcher Hour of Power. With the car business down right now, you might think that we don't need your donation. However, the market for donated vehicles is very strong. Please donate your old car, truck, RV, or motorcycle. Contact us at 877-KPFK-AUTO or donate online at kpfk.org. We'll take care of everything, and you'll help support quality programming you hear on KPFK. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO or donate online at kpfk.org. The Blunt Post with Vic. Russell Pollard is an English photojournalist, writer, and an activist. Uh, Russell has been an advocate for the Armenians and Artsakh, formerly known by its Soviet name, Nagar Magarabagh, for many years. He was instrumental in getting his native city of Derby to formally recognize the Armenian genocide, despite Great Britain's refusal to do so. He was awarded a medal by the Prime Minister of Artsakh and subsequently was declared persona non grata by Azerbaijan. Good morning, Russell. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. At least this morning for us, it's nighttime in London. How are you today? No, fine. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Um, you are in London, correct? Uh, well, no, I'm actually in a, a city called Derby, which is in the middle of England. So I'm that's right, because that's, that's where everything happened. So oh, of I just wasn't sure where you were now. I've said this to you before, and I'm I'm just fascinated when I meet uh, a non-Armenian who's been uh, so involved and instrumental in bringing awareness uh, to something that, uh, for the most part, the world has just chosen to ignore once again. It's unfathomable how world media uh, picks and chooses whose suffering is important enough to cover. Um, but your involvement with Armenia and Artsakh um, goes back or way back. You've been to Artsakh over 15 times in Armenia. 
you know, you have tight relationships and friends with people there. And of course, uh, reading some of the editorial that you've written, uh, they're so poignant, so precise and blunt. It brings it all back. And of course, uh, we're still living it. You know, in a way, Armenians have not been able to exhale for almost three years now. So first, let's just ask you, what's your perspective on what's happening right now? You know, it's one of great um, sadness, I suppose. And I'm, and I'm, like a lot of people, feeling quite empty, I suppose. I mean, it's very difficult to describe the emotions because, as you rightly say, I'm very close to people who live there still, who lived there previously. And having visited on many occasions, you know, you, you kind of get that feeling of being part of something. And even, you know, my emotions are nothing compared to those people who lost their homes, which I'm very sort of mindful of that I'm comfortable back here. But to watch as each day goes past, so from the end of November 20, the way that Azerbaijan is sort of slowly but surely secured its position within Artsakh from the point of view of building roads, airports, having these sort of debates about the borders um, and sort of chipping away. And I also know that within Artsakh itself, obviously they've got a fairly strong vantage point with being in Shushi, so a lot of intimidation of people through the phone, through bullet fire across, uh, you know, into the air sort of thing. So constantly trying to drive people to take that active decision to leave. That seems to be what it's all about. And, you know, the most recent pictures you see of the border checkpoint being set up and then you're thinking about the people that you know who are living in Stepanaka particularly who you know every day is uncertain because every day there seems to be something new that's happening and their position of being sort of being in prison somehow and having to negotiate presumably if this step stays negotiate a checkpoint run by Azerbaijani officials who clearly don't have a sympathetic view towards people who are moving backwards and forwards. So, yeah, it's really quite upsetting to kind of see it happening and to know that um, how it must feel for people over there. And having been there so many times when, even though it was always in a very difficult situation, there was always there was always that feeling of so much hope. You know, it was an independent, as far as I was concerned, yeah, a lot of independence, a lot of hope, a lot of young people, looking at way they could um, develop themselves and now all that hope has kind of been taken away from them so it's a really really quite upsetting to to see it and to contemplate how people are, are dealing with it yeah you you wrapped it up uh, pretty well uh, it's important to uh, for people to realize that you are a very well respected individual as a non-armenian ally in artsakh you've received a very prestigious medal from the Prime Minister of Artsakh. So a lot of people, you know, are very hopeful, or have been at least, that non-Armenians would speak up for them, for people who don't have a voice, and you've certainly done that. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on uh, KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Russell Pollard, who has been telling us about his experiences in Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and Armenia, as well as Britain. 
let's go back to well let me just let me let, let me stick with Artsakh for for a minute you said um uh that the liberation of Shushi in 92 was a significant turning point in the first war in Artsakh and the fall uh 28 years later uh, sealed the fate of the republic do you think that it's over well i hate to be too fatalistic but i i would struggle to see how how it's going to come back from this and i say that as somebody who's you know done a lot of work in support of the independence of Artsakh, but you know with shishi is a very very kind of strategically you know geographically and strategically strong position and yeah that great hope but one of the first visits I made into Artsakh in 2012. So that was a, a kind of with with the whole load of youth, young people. We uh, we we walked the various routes that the army went along. In fact, we were guided by some of the original commanders who did it in 1992. So the 30th, sorry, the 20th anniversary. And so you could get a sense of the occasion, sense of of having achieved something. And then once that was been had been taken, then that's where that sort of hope really started. But I remember, as indeed many people will do, those um, reading articles or particular kind of Twitter accounts of where the Azerbaijani forces were relative to Shushi. And it seemed to be taking a long time for them to get from Hadrut to Shushi and they were by Karitak and so on. And then I remember everybody questioning the reports from the, I think he was like the PR guy that the uh, president at the time was saying that the Azeris had taken Shushi and they said this must be a fake account, This must somebody must have hacked his account because it was just beyond belief that that had taken place, that it was impossible that the Armenians could lose Shushi um, and of course it was true and by that point, and I think that was the point when the Whereas the political scene is then says, this is when they kind of bailed out really and said, this is just enough. Because I guess at that point, had they not taken that position, then it would they would have just carried on through to Stepanakis. Um, and, and therefore the whole of Karabakh would have been under direct Azeri control, would have been my estimation. Aside from aside from being instrumental in getting the city of Derby to recognize the Armenian genocide in 2018. You also, uh, in the middle of the invasion, I, I don't call it a war because I think it was a genocidal invasion mm. and ethnic cleansing, but even in the middle of that, you also got Derby to recognize the independent Republic of Artsakh. Is there any hope that, um, you know, we can continue to push for this and, and save Artsakh, at least for uh, what's left of it? Well, I guess there's always got to be hope, but I, I just think it requires some fairly significant and cohesive international effort to do it. And and I don't know where that's coming from. I really don't know where that's coming from. I mean, the UK, for example, bluntly is not remotely interested. There's no way the UK is going to have that kind of debate. No, UK is interested in Azerbaijani oil. Yes, fundamentally. So, uh, and that was always a difficult position for me because when I was visiting there, because people just assumed I was part of the UK kind of initiative, so right. to speak. Um, you know, I'm kind of on the wrong side on this. So that was always kind of slightly awkward. But yeah, I mean you see 
France getting kind of interested and occasionally, I know shortly after I came back from Armenia last year, Nancy Pelosi went to visit Yerevan, which I thought was quite interesting, quite unusual. But there's just not enough cohesion, I think, amongst nations to say this is a fight that we want to have. And the world narrative is that um, Artsakh has always been part of this sort of Republic of Azerbaijan. Um, which is which is inaccurate, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Artsakh has never been part of sovereign Azerbaijan, even since ni- 1918, when Azerbaijan was created as a territory within, you know, unfolded in USSR two years later. Um, Artsakh was uh, an autonomous oblast within it. And that's that's the narrative that Azerbaijan's sort of massive lobby power and, and public relations has been able to convince the world, this sort of this uh, fictitious uh, narrative, which is well, unfortunate. They, yeah, I mean, their PR uh, throughout the years has been way, way ahead of Armenians. I mean, it's been really successful in the way that they have manipulated other governments. And you'll be familiar with the whole fake Khajalu genocide, as they like to call it, right. in 1992. And that was one of the things that I worked on at some length with colleagues in Nazar to try and understand more about what actually happened around that event and to try and understand how that narrative worked, because it's, it felt to me that there was so much that was mutually con- contradictory about it. And I did write an article, which is on the same website as another, uh, about the lies. And all the source material for the article was Azerbaijani source material, quite deliberately, because I didn't want it to be Armenian material, because they would just say, well, obviously you would uh, say that. And if you understand, having visited the villages and uh, Agdam and the villages between Agdam and um, Khajalu and so on, and you get a sense of how it might have worked, and you see the videos that were taken and how they were portraying certain things clearly in the wrong place, because if you understand the geography, you can see where it's supposed to have taken. And um, that whole thing developed over time, and now, certainly a few years ago, then quite a number of developing nations were being encouraged to recognise the this genocide uh, on the back of healthy grants and support from Azerbaijan on, on economic fronts. And yeah, the, with caviar diplomacy and yeah, yeah. I mean, money from the Azerbaijan laundromat. Yeah, they encouraged Mexico to uh, recognise this genocide as being true and they, they put up a a monument in one of the parks within Mexico City. And I contacted the Mexican embassy in London and asked them to invite me down so I could explain to them why this wasn't true, why the whole narrative, why the, what they were being presented just wasn't sensible, meaningless. And I was trying to do that with other people, but I didn't, I'm not sure how successful it was, although those monuments have been removed, so I, I'm not sure I can say anything about that. That in particular is a classic case of that whole so-called genocide, which is clearly a kind of a way of poking at the Armenian genocide on something that was uh, completely fabricated by the Azerbaijanis in the years following February 19. Yeah, they're very good at using offense as defense uh, in their strategy. Yeah. 
and and just coming up literally with lies. And it's sometimes far more difficult <laughs> to actually combat like a like a really out of this world kind of a lie and try to disprove it that's yeah. outrageous than most other things. Um, it's just absurd. I mean, the narrative now that Aliyev is using is part of Armenia is ancient Azerbaijani land. Um, I mean, yeah. it's just so absurd. I mean, Azerbaijan, a nation that as a sovereign nation has been around since 91, as a territory has been around since 1918, is mm. trying to claim that a nation like Armenia that's been around for thousands of years, with their historic records and there's yeah. like monuments and churches and cemeteries all over it, that somehow Azerbaijan has claims to it. I mean, it's just such an absurd. Of course, part of it is to brainwash his people, you know, that that he's been uh, able to do very well with armenophobia and such. But you you've done some you know incredible work i mean going to the the mexican embassy in london that's just uh that's just uh incredible uh, if you're just tuning in this is the blunt post with vic on uh kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host vic jerami and you are listening to my interview with russell pollard who has been telling us about his experiences in artsakh formerly known as nagarno-karabakh and Armenia, as well as Britain. The recognition of, I mean, I've always been disappointed that uh, UK is one of the few remaining mm. uh, major nations that has not recognized the Armenian genocide, despite uh, various uh, British people having witnessed it when it did happen. And of course, we know the the politics around it, catering to, or, or, or pandering, I should say, to uh, Turkey and oil-rich uh, Azerbaijan and all of that. Is there any hope there in the in the British Parliament? Because I don't really see much. No, no, I, I can't. I, I think you've you've summarised it uh, correctly. Which is why why would the UK government, as, as a foreign policy foreign policy type initiative, um, disturb Turkey or Azerbaijan for that matter? What what's the upside for the UK to do that? And particularly with Turkey being part of NATO, potentially being closer to Europe, albeit we're not in it anymore, of course, but and and sort of prodding something that's a hundred years old in the minds of most people, I would say. I just don't see why they would do it. You know, I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even have any expectation that they would do it. But the and it, I mean, it clearly is very a, a massively sensitive subject for Turkey. I can't remember whether, forgive me if, if this has already been sort of read, but um, one of the first, one of the ways in which I started to communicate with Derby is we have a Holocaust Memorial Day as a kind of UK kind of tradition around January the 27th, which was set up a few years ago, prim- primarily to remember the Holocaust from the Second World War. But I joined the group in Derby, and in fact, 2015 was the first year I spoke, and I wanted to talk about the Armenian genocide and the group. Great, thankfully, said, so, "Well, yeah, you join the group and you can talk about it. You know, it'd be great to sort of broaden the perspective," um, which I did. And the day before I was due to speak, because I publicised it quite a lot, the mayor of Derby received a letter from the Turkish embassy, basically saying, to paraphrase, reconsider 
bringing up the subject because you're not in any way, you haven't got this right, it's not very good, it's not good for diplomatic relations. And for me at the time, initially, I was a little bit kind of slightly put out about it. And then because that was in the evening, I was due to talk. And I thought, well, actually, this is, they've done me a great favour. Because when you're talking to people in Derby, this is something, you know, we don't have our meetings in Derby, the odd one or two students, I think. So when I'm talking to them about something that on the face of it happened 100 years ago, and you can say, but the, the embassy of the, in fact, the, the, the Turkish government has written to little old Derby to challenge our right to say what we want. Right. And so that's how relevant it is to today. It's not an historical subjects of, of interest to historians so so that was really powerful and, and for that matter when we passed the resolution not we i didn't but uh, <laughs> the council at, on my request to recognize the independence of Artsakh, then the azerbaijani embassy was constantly contacting the leadership and they're beginning to wonder what they've done or what they <laughs> what what's this Pollard guy got us to do um, and they were ringing up about trade deals, about they might not get trade deals. So there's massive pressure being brought to bear on to to withdraw the motion, which again, thankfully they didn't. But no, I don't think the the, the UK government would would do anything to recognise the genocide, the Armenian genocide. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Russell Pollard photojournalist, writer, and an activist. You know, what's really unfortunate is, is, is this, and that's due to lack of politicians that are actual idealists that have some courage. You know, in with the 30 plus nations that have recognized the genocide, Turkey has done the same thing, right? Right before the vote, they have threatened, they have pulled their ambassador, they have said, we're not gonna do this, we're not gonna do that. Uh, more, most famously, they did that with France. But France did the right thing anyway. And guess what? It's also to Turkey's uh, benefit to not cancel those trade deals and this and that. And everything yeah. went ahead and, and everything was just fine. Of course, you know, and this has happened with, you know, it happened with the U.S. It happened with, uh, you know, so many other nations. I mean, Switzerland, for Pete's sake, right? The so-called neutral nation, which there's no such thing as being neutral. But I mean, Switzerland has recognized uh, the genocide. You know, I can't see what Turkey and Azerbaijan can do in any kind of a significant way uh, to yeah. the powerful British uh, government. Yes, they'll call the, their ambassador for a few months. They'll, you know, they'll moan and cry and this and that. But it takes it takes a few um, really powerful and uh, and and loud uh, members of uh, parliament to uh, do something like this and really like tell people this is a mutually beneficial relationship that we have with Turkey. Mm. You know, mm. it's not a one way thing. Same thing with Azerbaijan. I mean, Azerbaijan has used the UK as as kind of well Aliyev's, I should say. Aliyevs uh, have used the UK as like their their base for <laughs> their laundromat, their caviar mm. diplomacy headquarters, uh, and so on and so forth. But you know, it's uh, you know, it comes down to self interest for for individuals at least. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, well, Russell, before I let you go. Uh, is, is there anything significant in, in, in Britain? I mean, of course, 
aside from the coronation. But just anything that you have a, a strong feeling about, uh, you want to tell us? It's un- very unusual times for us over here, notwithstanding the fact that the loss of the Queen, which is kind of an unusual thing, probably for a lot of other people to realise, but unless you're very old, uh, you will only have known about the Queen. And so that is an unusual, even if people are not particularly realists, that's a quite an unusual thing for that figurehead, that, that sort of character to disappear. To, to die and pass them, um, and the great outpouring at the time. And I say that not because I'm particularly a royalist, but when you then lay that on top of the whole Brexit vote, which also is, is, like, is a major fracture in the way that we were engaging globally. I mean, I've watched many, many general elections, and, and a lot of them will go the wrong way, and you think, well, okay, but in a few years' time, they'll all get corrected. I mean, I voted to to remain within the EU, as indeed a good proportion of what I would call sensible people did. And I think a lot of people voted for the wrong reasons. I know that people would then argue with me that how do I know that and so on. But but I remember on the morning that, that the result came through, as I felt deep feeling of sickness, almost nausea, because you know that you now just like jumped out of the aircraft and the parachute's not really working very well. Yeah. And you don't know how we're gonna land. But there's no going back, and you know that's taken to taken us into quite quite different territory, I think. And whilst those people who championed it will say, "Don't worry about it, guys. It's all working really well." We all know it's not. And so, you know, I remember having conversations with friends in Artsakh when I first went out there. So you know, the early 2010, 11, 12, about the way life was in the UK and so on. And if we had that conversation again, it will be quite a different place. And we've had the independence um, votes in Scotland, which isn't really going anywhere. But you get these, you know, it's quite a different, quite a different country mm-hmm. to, um, to the way it was such a short time ago. And yeah. particularly Brexit, it sort of self-imposed harm. And it's, you know, a terrible situation from that point of view. But, but... Going back to uh, the Queen, I suppose, from the point of view of being positive, we had the Jubilee in June of last year, and that was fantastic from the point of view of bringing people together. So, you know, years, what felt like years at least, everyone was sort of locked up or a little bit kind of enshrouded with COVID and so on. And, um, you know, in the village I live in, we had a massive street party, and if brought everybody together as massive events and allowed people to really communicate and get together again. So, yeah, it's interesting. And I'm not sure how much of all this is publicised well. But And one of the things I, just staying on the whole sort of side of it, one of the things I enjoy when I'm in Armenia is talking to particularly people who are more uh, students, how an English way of life is portrayed in Armenia. And it's, it's quite dated, shall we say, and uh, yeah. quite cute and twee as to the way that they think we operate and the way that we we all walk around with bowl hats and umbrellas and um also very quaint stereotypes but um but well, yeah. I, I watch a lot of uh i mean i primarily watch masterpiece um theater you know from okay. father brown to grantchester to uh Downton abbey and, and and so many other shows and i fantasize about living in a in an english village all the time 
Uh, I like cold and I like rain and I like fog and 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 I just think but also Scotland too because I love Shetland you guys have definitely gone through it um, I was in London right after Brexit it was 2017 I believe and then you've had to deal with that the prime ministers COVID COVID hit um, pretty, yeah. pretty hard one of the one of the nations that was hit really hard you've had the death of the queen some of the you know scandals in the royal family yeah, yeah. Hopefully the worst is behind you. Well, I hope so. But, um, but you know, I, I still reflect on this with some sense of proportion because it's still nothing compared to, well, I would say it's nothing compared to what we say about Ukraine, of course. Nothing at all. Sure. And it's one of the things I always, you know, annoys me when people feel that somehow we have issues here. Well, yeah, okay, but it's nothing compared to Ukraine. It's certainly nothing compared to those people who were living peacefully and legitimately in Artsakh and who can who either lost their properties in, in November 20 or subsequently had to be, be refugees. And, um, I, you know, I, I can't even begin to sort of see the two together, really. You know, ours is self-imposed harm and, you know, there's enough people... But people suffer anyway, right? I mean, average yeah. uh, Brit that didn't have uh, didn't have uh, control over the votes too much, uh, has suffered too, and their inflation is is causing a lot of suffering for British people. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a cost of living crisis. Energy bills are going up. Food prices are going up yeah. more so than other G7 countries. So some of this, I think, is related to Brexit. I think probably a lot of it is related to Brexit because getting across the border, trade across the border, is quite different. So there are a lot of people. I mean, when I explain to friends living in Armenia that, uh, and one of my friends I hope will be coming over um, in the next month, and so I'll be able to show her English villages and see how life is over here. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on uh, KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Russell Pollard, who has been telling us about his experiences in Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and Armenia, as well as Britain. Russell, um, in case I forgot how to pronounce your last name uh, correctly, it's Pollard. Was it? no. <laughs> Pollard, yeah, that's fine. Pollard, right? <laughs> yeah, you Pollard. have to do an affected English accent, I suppose, to... Um... <laughs> so Pollard. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, Russell, thank you for all that you do, your activism, your humanity, your writing. By the way, where can people sort of sample your work, read your work and such? Their website you can direct us to? Yeah. So the, the website is www.artsakh.org.uk. Artsakh.org.uk. Artsakh.org.uk. So that links you to... The, the writing I've done, but also the photographs as well. So um, I now realise I've got a record of a, a time of Artsakh, which, well, let's hope it is repeated again, but it's a very special time, special period in time that I uh, had the opportunity to record real life in Artsakh, not simple you know, tourism, journalism type thing, but real people doing real things. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Russell. Okay, no, thank you, Vic, uh, very much to, uh, to, to you and uh, everybody who's listening, and I uh, wish everybody well.
That was my interview with Russell Pollard. Russell, thank you very much for uh, your time, for being on the show and everything that you do. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.